Turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of James. Maybe we'll get just one of these mics on so you don't hear me twice. That last song, it's interesting, sometimes we're like endless worship, and people think, I don't like singing so much. It doesn't mean just endless singing, it means endless worship of the Lord. So if you're not one of those that loves uh, corporate singing, you don't have to worry about you know, having to do it endlessly. But hopefully you'll like it there better. Anyway, yeah, redemption. Uh, we started a, a new study the book of, on the book of James last week. And uh, this week we're uh, kind of diving right in. We only hit one verse last week. Today we're going to triple that. We're going to do three verses. So there you go. Uh, moving right along. When I was little, I used to love Sesame Street. Uh, yeah, you can make fun of me. Just don't. Just kidding. But one of the songs I loved was like, oh, one of these things just doesn't belong here. You know, which one is it? You had to pick it. And uh, the, the song said, can you uh, find which one doesn't belong before the song ends? And I always used to, you know, try to find which one doesn't belong there. So um, what things don't belong together? There's a lot of things that I can think of that don't belong together. Let me start with like more personal ones. More personal meaning that you might not agree with me with what I think doesn't belong together. Uh, mayo, mayonnaise, and anything. Yeah, mayonnaise doesn't belong on anything. So some of you were like, amen. Some of you like, heresy, right? So I, I said these are personal ones. Um, ketchup and steak, they, they don't go together. If you got a good steak, you don't put ketchup on it. I would say don't even put any sauce on it, but some of you would say A1 or Heinz 57. I would say uh, my personal ones, veggies and pizza. They don't go together. It, meat lovers, that's where it's at. That's for me. Uh, you don't have to agree with all this. That's okay. Um, you can be wrong. I'm just kidding. So now, how about the more regional ones? That was personal ones, more regional ones. There's a theme so far, food. If you look at my size, that's a theme of a lot of my days. Um, I, I grew up going to my grandmother's, and every time I would go there, the first meal we had, or, or just midnight snack, it didn't matter what time we arrived, was cornbread and milk. Well. The region of the South, cornbread and milk works. If you go up north, they're like, what? Yeah, don't get that. So they don't belong together up there. Uh, biscuits and milk gravy. I had it at every single meal, breakfast with my grandmother. You go up north, and they're like, what's, what's milk gravy? That sounds crazy. Like red-eye gravy, they might understand, but not milk gravy. Uh, and grits. You know, down south, they work. My wife, when we had grits, she put sugar on them. So I'm like, grits don't mix with sugar. Up north, they put sugar on grits, if they even know what a grit is, you know? So it doesn't work out. So that's the more regional ones. How about the more universal ones? Ones that most of us, not all of us necessarily, but most of us would agree with that these just don't belong together. Drugs and alcohol, they don't mix well, right? We would mostly agree with that. Um, oil and water, they don't really mix at all. Uh, bare feet and Legos. <laughs> if you're a parent or a kid, I talked to some kids this morning and they were like, yeah, I stepped on a really sharp one that had two little, we said that, right? Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, and, and fingers and super glue. They don't mix. Some things just don't go together. Trump and tweets. They don't mix together. 
So some things just don't belong together. I love the story of Coca-Cola, one of the most, uh, I, I, one of the greatest, I think, company stories in, in America. But I recently came across an article that said um, the scandalous story of Coke. I'm like, the scandalous story of Coke? It's all good, right? And so I was intrigued by the title, The Scandalous Story of Coca-Cola, and Coca-Cola was invented by a pharmacist in Atlanta in 1885. Well, he put in cocaine, that's why it has the word Coke in it, and he knew it was addictive, and so he made all these claims that it can cure headaches and it can cure all these kind of things, and, um, and so he marketed it at, at that. In that time, uh, it, they didn't regulate medications like they do today. You can make all kinds of health claims that you, know, you could be healed from this disease and that disease. Uh, you didn't have to prove any of the effectiveness of the particular drug, and you didn't have to reveal any of the dangers of the particular drug. In uh, around 1929, uh, things became more apparent that there was some issues with a lot of the products that were out there that had some of these addictive kind of drugs in them, and they got pulled from the shelf. And uh, Coca-Cola, Instead of, uh, it, it, that's when, it, this is interesting. I didn't know this until this particular article. The reason Coca-Cola and other drinks like it are called soft drinks is because they were no longer hard, like hard alcohol and hard liquor. So you have the hard drinks and you have the soft drinks. That's interesting. How many of you knew that already? Okay. You know, all the people that are smart. I mean, all, oh, that's terrible. All the rest of you are smart too. You just didn't happen to read that article. I'm sorry. You just shut me off from there. So I was thinking about James. Maybe James wrote this book and these particular three verses before there was regulations that you have to prove true what you say. Um, after all, listen to what he claims. He starts off by saying that you can count it all joy, my brethren. That sounds good so far. You can count things joyful, brothers, and sisters, so far so good, he should have stopped, but he continued like Trump. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And I talk about things that don't go together. Joy and trials and suffering and pain, they don't go together. They don't mix, kind of like oil and water. Uh, so cocaine is no longer an ingredient in the new Coke recipe, although the one that's hidden and you can't get at, which is probably all of them, but the original recipe still has it in it. Uh, but the one that's on the, uh, on the market that you, you get doesn't have it, it's removed. That product has been removed and all the products that were similar to that were removed from the shelves. Maybe James should be pulled out. You know, a lot of James is pretty popular, but this particular part of the letter is not a very popular part of the letter. It's not a very popular part at, at all. But James jumps right into the problem. You know, the people that he was writing to had been dispersed and scattered all over the place. And not just scattered physically, they were scattered emotionally, spiritually. They didn't know what to think. They thought that this Jesus was going to come and rescue them, not scatter them, not cause them to be persecuted for his namesake. And so James jumps right into the problem, not very much introduction. Um, he doesn't play around with words that are like, ah, oh, this should not be happening to you. I'm so sorry that you're going through these struggles. We shouldn't be having to deal with these things as those who are believers in the Messiah. He doesn't go around with that. It's not popular. They don't seem to fit together this joy and rejoicing and counting it all joy and suffering and pain and tribulations and all those things. But brothers and sisters, don't be surprised by it. 
uh, we're often called to endure it, sometimes for a very, very long time. And while it's there, God through James tells us that we're to what? Count it all joy. How can we possibly do that? Let me read it for us, James 1. I'll start with verse 1, and we'll go to verse 4. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad or scattered abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to read it from the message. The message is not really a translation of the Bible, uh, but it's one man's trying to get at what the text is saying, but he's doing so and trying to keep close to the same uh, word. So he's kind of looking at the Greek and using you know, his thoughts about what it's meaning, and he puts it in there. And I think this is helpful uh, in this case. He says this, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life or your Christian life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. As we prepare to hear and heed the hard but good word of the Lord, let's pray together. Father, you tell us in Psalms that the unfolding of your word brings light. And so, Father, today I pray that as these verses before us are unfolded and we look at other scriptures to help us understand the truths of your word as related to suffering and temptation and trials and pain, Father, that you would give us light, that you would give us light that we could go through these things for your glory and our good. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Let me give you two quotes on suffering. Um, the first one is by Elizabeth Elliot. She was the wife of the missionary, well, she was a missionary also, but the missionary wife of the missionary Jim Elliot, who uh, was killed in 1956 when he went into an unreached people group that had never heard the gospel, and he was making the first contact with them uh, from outside of their um, tribe in Ecuador, and he was killed. Here's Elizabeth Elliot. I am not a theologian or a scholar. I would take debate on that she's not a theologian if she studies God's word and pushes into it, and she is somewhat of that. And if you've read her readings or her, her writings, you would probably say, wow, she's pretty good at this. I learn a lot from her. I am not a theologian or a scholar, but I am very aware of the fact that pain is necessary to all of us. In my own life, I think I can honestly say that out of the deepest pain has come the strongest conviction of the presence and the love of God. The next quote is by Charles Spurgeon. He's considered the prince of preachers. Uh, he's a Baptist preacher, but man, he crosses denominational lines of people saying that, man, he's the preacher of preachers. Uh, he was a preacher in England in the 1850s, and died in 1892, I think it was. And um, he says this, and then I'm gonna read you a little bit about his life so that you understand where this quote came from. I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. And this Prince of Preachers spent a lot of time on the bed of pain, if you know his story, if you know his biography. So um, he battled his whole life with depression and with physical pains of all kinds. At 22, he was 
uh, he became the pastor of a large church, and when he was preaching to hundreds of people, uh, some folks in the crowd said, fire, fire, and they were just joking, but the whole group started running out of the building, and 28 were seriously injured, and seven died. Said he never got over that. His wife says this, my beloved's anguish was so deep and was so violent that reason seemed to totter on her throne, and we feared many times that he would never preach again. Over and over and over. At age 33, uh, he, he, began, he began having all kinds of physical ailments along with his emotional depressive ailments. Uh, he, he suffered from a, a disease called Bright's disease, a kidney disease, an inflamed kidney disease that was very painful. He had gout. How many of you have ever had gout? I, I have had. None of you have had gout? I don't wish it upon you at all. Um, but he had gout. It's a very painful uh, disease. Rheumatism uh, and neuropathy. So he had all these conditions. And it says that he was out of the pulpit about one-third of the time because he couldn't go there physically. was beat down, and, and he would spend weeks in the bed. The weeks in the bed were not primarily from the pains that I just read, but par primarily from depression. He was a very depressed person. It says the depression hit him so hardly and so intensely that he would say, and one said this, I, and I quote, I could say with Job, my soul chooses uh, strangling rather than life. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery of spirit. That's a very, you know, flowery preacher words for saying I was suicidal, right? I would rather die than live, he said. And yet Spurgeon taught over and over and over to his own soul and to the congregation that God has a purpose in all his sufferings. God prepares and prepared that preacher to preach the word differently and more uh, and have more compassion on his congregants than he would have had had he not had all that suffering. And I quote again from Charles Spurgeon, it's quite clear from scripture that through believers suffering, God refines them like gold in a furnace. When the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, it will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible and will find a sweet satisfaction even in its flames. That's uh, the testimony of Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. We pursue uh, in life our greatest happiness. We go for the things that make us the most happy. And, and what we would define as a successful life is, is a happy life, is the things that make me happy and, and bring the most ease. Uh, because of our idea of success being so shallow, pain and suffering don't fit in the picture. Because our idea of a successful, happy, easy life is so shallow, um, pain and suffering and trials and tribulation and death are all enemies. They're not our faithful friends. Um, so in God's economy, though, pain and suffering are quite different. For the child of God, they're different because the whole idea of success is different. What God calls success is not what you and what I call success. We would call success a life of ease and happiness. What God calls success is something quite different. And we have it really in verse 4. James says uh, that the purpose of, of my whole writing is this, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we can go to a lot of other places, Ephesians 4, a lot of, a lot of places there. 
Uh, we'll look at another passage in Romans 8:28 in just a minute, and we'll kind of pull it together there as far as what is God's success, a definition of success. But it's only when we're clear about what that definition of a success is that we can count pain and suffering as sheer gift. We, we have to understand that the goal and the purpose of life and success is different than what we define it as, or we can never count pain and suffering as joy and happiness and, and a friend instead of an enemy. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 says this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when the glory, his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So Peter's saying the same thing. When you start suffering and you're under trials, rejoice. Count it all joy because you're, you're being tried and suffering like Christ was suffered. When we come to Christ, we, have this, we, we, we keep our idea of success in mind. Generally, when we come to Christ and we're keeping our idea of success in our minds, the reason we're coming to Christ is like everything I've tried to find a happy, successful, easy life has failed. So I'm going to go to Jesus to try to find a happy, easy, successful life. I, a lot of times we go to Jesus and we don't change our definition of success. And so we come to Jesus with our success in mind and not his definition of success in mind. And we say, I've tried it and it doesn't work. I've tried to come to Jesus to find my happiness and my ease of life instead of coming to Jesus to try to find his design of success. Um, shalom. What does that mean? It means peace, right? The word shalom is the word for peace, but really when we say that word, we're talking about a soul rest, a peace that like, goes deep down. And I would say that we all long for that. That's really a desire that we all have. We long for peace. And usually we have a definition of what will bring peace, money, friends, particular relationships. We live for peace. Uh, shalom comes not from the freedom of suffering and pain, though. And we think it comes because, well, if I want a peaceful life, then I want to do everything possible to get rid of pain and suffering and trials and tribulations and temptations. But shalom doesn't come from having those leave your life. Instead, what, when shalom comes is when we find our comfort and rest in the one who is our peace. Ephesians 2.14. It says that Jesus Christ himself is our peace, and that peace you can have in the midst of trials and tribulations and pains and sufferings and pleasures. Romans 8, 28 and 29. A passage that many of you have heard, probably a fair number of you have memorized at some point. Um, and do I have it up there? I do. And I don't have it in my notes. Uh, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He causes all things, all things. All things includes what? Suffering and trials, conflicts and temptations and pain. All things. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To, to become conformed to the image of his son. You see, the idea of God's success is that you look like Jesus. Not that we don't have suffering and pain. Jesus had it. We're to follow in the steps. We read that in 1 Peter. So all things work together for good. What's good? 
it's good to look like Christ. All things are suffering and pain and trials and temptations. Romans 5, 3 through 5, it says this. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character, and proven character brings about hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let me read a Tim Keller quote. This is from his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of the joys of life, foreseeing the coming sorrows. Here's what he said so far. He's saying other worldviews, we can sit in the middle of the joys when there are joys, but we're always dreading what's coming next. But here's what the Christian can do. Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Very different. If we were able to like put these, the, the verse I just read and this quote up together, what you would see is this, that James is saying because we have the hope of the future success of looking like Jesus, then we can pull that future hope and the truth of it back into the present situations of trials and sufferings and pains and we can rejoice because we know what's going to happen with the trials and through the trials and sufferings and pains it's going to cause me to what have the comfort of Jesus and look more like him so uh, that idea of the future hope being brought to the present to help our circumstances we mentioned that James uses that a couple of times in his text and he does it right here with the idea of suffering and pain so James is saying this instead of resisting conflicts and trials and sufferings of every sort and counting them as enemies, what he says is this, it's like we're called to not count them as enemies, but from the hands of a good guide to accomplish what God's purposes are, we're to call and embrace them as our allies. Pain and suffering and thorns in the flesh, they're not enemies for the Christian. They're allies. Now, here's, it's pretty important to, to, to talk about what James isn't saying. James is not telling you like, Ah, you should just like rejoice and glory and find pleasure in all your pain and find pleasure in all your sufferings as it is. It's not just that we, we have these pains and sufferings and man, count the pain joy. No, he's counted all joy. And meaning the whole thing that is, God's accomplishing through it. Suffering is really suffering. Pain is really painful. My foot really hurts. Some of you have anguish of your soul over situations, and you're really hurting. James isn't saying cover over the hurts. He's saying, no, they're real. Suffering's really suffering. Pain's really painful. But he is saying this, that all the pain and all the suffering, they're being designed and they're being fitted and they're being brought together by a guide to become, instead of an occasion for your Try, you're, you're, the occasion for your lack of joy, they're, doing, they're, they're quite the opposite. God is bringing all these things together that, that they're actually the occasion, if we see them right, of great rejoicing and of great growth. So it's a lot to do with our perspective on our sufferings and our trials and our conflicts. I can imagine if you have like a blob of glass, what is glass? It's sand and lime and soda. You have this molten ball of glass at the end of a, a ride, and you know I can imagine the glass, if it could speak, uh, would probably not be really excited about getting stuck into this massive hot fire, right? 
Like, no. I don't think it's saying, yeah, put me in there. I'll take this. Some of my college students, goes to, they, we go to Wild Wings, and they're like, give me the Braveheart. They put the Braveheart in, and they take the Braveheart out, and they start drinking water constantly. Like, ah, yeah. But this glass gets put in, and because it's being put in by a master glass blower, it comes out very differently. The fire changes it. So we have to have the proper perspective on trials and troubles and pains and sufferings of all the sorts that they come to. In order to have a proper response, we have to have a proper view of them. We have to think correctly about them. How do you think about suffering and pain and all that? We, we don't want anything to do with them. Let me read a passage from Romans 12, 1 and 2. We used this passage last week, uh, and I'll explain how we used it last week, and then I'll explain how it fits into this idea of having our thinking changed related to suffering and pain, conflict, tribulations, and trials. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Last week we said that James says that if you're going to be believing this message of the gospel, it's going to change everything. And we looked at this passage because Paul says the same thing. He's like, if you've been touched by the mercies of God, it's only reasonable for you to give your whole life to him. It's your reasonable act of service. James says the same thing. Then the second verse for this week, it says, and do not be conformed to this world. This world would say, I don't want anything to do with pain or suffering that's against my idea of success directly. But we need to have our minds transformed to see that it's the very condition from which we grow to know the comfort and love of Christ more dearly. So what, what's our thinking that doesn't line up with the truth of Scripture related to suffering and pain? What's our thinking that's wrong? Uh, we, we, we would say that, just like the world says, these are two mutually exclusive things. If I have pain, I'm not going to have joy. And God says something quite the opposite. We constantly work and pray. We pray all the time for alleviating sufferings and pain. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably the thing we pray the most for in our prayers. It's not wrong to pray for alleviating pain. It's not wrong to want it gone. But it can be an idol if we overlong for it to be gone and not see what God's doing with it. We constantly pray and work and labor and go under the knife and we pay and we plead to get rid of sufferings and trials and problems. Why? So we can have joy. In God's economy, he brings those things so we can have joy. Joy of seeing him change us. Now we, uh, in theory, we could get rid of all the pain and all the suffering and still be miserable. A lot of people that have lots of money that can get rid of their pain by taking different medications and drugs and by having the... I, I, was, I was talking to somebody yesterday and said, you should go um, down to Pensacola. They have a, a orthopedic clinic there that, that works on all the athletes. And I'm like, well, they're not going to take me because I'm not one of them people. Um, but then I was thinking, well, if my insurance doesn't pay, I don't have a way to pay for that. You know, so it's impossible to pay the bill. But some people can pay the bills for having those surgeries. And uh, they... They, they seem like they have enough money that they shouldn't have any. They don't have any pains in their life, and yet they're miserable. We read about them in Psalm 73. So theoretically, you could have none of those pains and none of that suffering and be miserable, 
But truly, in God's economy, you can have all those things and rejoice with great joy, exceedingly great joy, it says in, in the Peter passage. Why? Because we know what God is doing through and in and as we're under those trials and in that fire. So what's your perspective on suffering and pains and conflicts? Uh, what is your perspective on it? Let me talk the second kind of half of the, of the sermon is how do we develop God's perspective? How do we develop a, a different perspective on this suffering and pains and all that? Well, James starts off by saying, count it all joy. Consider it all joy. Uh, deem it as all joy. See it as joyful what God is doing through these things. Look beyond the surface of the suffering. Look beyond the surface of the pain. Look beyond the surface of the temptation. See what's really down there. Now, a lot of you guys will hear a lot of times like, you've got to look beyond the surface of that guy that you want to like you. You've got to look beyond the surface of the girl that, you know, you want to like. Like down below there, they might look good on the outside, but down deep they're wicked. And the truth is, we're all wicked down deep, right? But this is flipping it all around. This is saying, now on the outside, pain and suffering looks wicked. And go beyond the surface. What is the true color of pain and suffering? What's the true color of conflict and tribulation and trials? Well, the true color is good for us. Hebrews 12, 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's not fun. Like going into the furnace, it didn't look fun, right? Well, when I was playing sports, I think in every single case, in every single sport I was playing, part of the training we would run suicide drills. How many people have ever run suicide drills? Do you still make them do suicide drills? But, well, that's good. Uh, but suicide drills are what they sound like. They're suicide. It's like crazy. But you know, you get halfway through or three quarters of the way through a really, really hard, long, tough season, and the people who've done the suicide drills have, have built their endurance up and they can continue on. They can, they can win that big game. They can go further in the playoffs. Eddie might want to start those suicide drills again. But all discipline for the moment doesn't seem to be joyful but sorrowful, but yet as we've been trained by it, as we see them differently, all of a sudden we can have those things in our life and we can say, Lord, I don't like the actual pain, but I'm glorying in the comfort that you're bringing me in it. And I'm glorying in the fact that I know I have a hope for what you're producing through it. Trials are, trials are going to come. We already read in 1 Peter 4, don't, don't be surprised when they come. They're, they're going to come your way. And it, it floors me when, and I do this, but it floors me when I do it and when I hear other people do it. They hear something's going on in the, in the person's life and they're like, oh, I can't believe that's going on. I can't believe that's happening to you. And then you have something in your own life, like a foot problem, and I, I say that because that's what I'm experiencing. But whatever you're experiencing, it's like, I can't believe that's happening. Well, John 16, says this, these things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. We've already talked about that. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. You're going to have tribulation. God doesn't promise his saints not to have it. In fact, he says you will have it. It's actually promised, but it's actually for a purpose. Whenever, whenever it comes, that's James' text. That word whenever is the same word used in the 
story of the Good Samaritan, not of the Good Samaritan, but of the one who fell into the robber's hands, the, ones, the one who fell into the situations. That's the whenever. So we can have trials and conflicts. You might not be going through them now, and, and from walking to here down to your car, you might fall into them. You might trip over them. The conflicts can come up just like that. Whenever they come, it says, and then they will come. All sorts of them. Various ones. So, so many of the passages that talk about sufferings, it says the various trials, the many sorted, the, the many sized ones. Um, and God perfectly fits them. The intensity of them, the shape of them, the size of them. He shapes them to fit the situation and the need. Now, our suffering and our pain uh, and our conflicts, they come from a lot of different places. I had a pastor friend who's preaching on the same text today. He texted me and said, John, this is talking about just uh, the trials and conflicts that come from living a holy life, right? And you look at the whole book of James, it's the trials and sufferings and hardships that come from within, from without. They come from because we, we live as sinners. They come when we live for Jesus and other people persecute us. This is talking about every kind of trial God takes, and he takes it and he redeems it and he shapes and molds and makes us more like Jesus because of it. They come and they're fitted, and they're designed, and they're shaped just for a particular thing. And, and we say this, that, you know, they're exactly what we need. And usually, here's how I say that. It's like, well, that's exactly what I need. You see the difference? When I say, well, that's exactly what I need, I'm saying that's exactly what I don't need. I don't need one more thing. I don't need one more trial. I don't need one more suffering. I don't need one more situation in my family to arise that's troublesome. That's exactly what I need. The truth is that is exactly what we need. And if we didn't need it, guess what? We wouldn't have it. It wouldn't come. How do I know that? I can confidently tell you that there's not one thing in your life that has ever arisen or that ever will arise that you don't need from the hand of God. I can say that because God says it. And if you would turn your eyes uh, to the text in front of us, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says this. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various sorts of trials, all kinds of them, so that the proof of, the, of your faith being more precious than uh, gold, out of order here, which, perish, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you didn't need them, they wouldn't come. Because God says he only brings them if they're necessary. Necessary for what? They come for a purpose. James says, and we just read in Peter, he says they come to test our faith. It's like, yeah, they test my faith. They test everything about me. That's not what I'm talking about. They test the genuineness of our faith. You know, so these trials come and uh, they, they test the character of our faith. Is there real faith? Do we really trust the truths of God's word? But they do more than just test the character of our faith to see if it's real. They do that, but they also come to produce something. They don't just come to test the character of our faith, but testing actually produces things. You know, those drills test my condition. But as I run those drills, they condition me. Does that make sense? 
The test that God gives us tests the genuineness of our faith, but as we remain under those trials and temptations and the suffering and the pain, they actually equip us and they change us and they cause us to endure. So they're producing something. So these trials are actually producing something. It, it's not producing just like, yeah, it's producing a desire to get out from under them. It's producing more than just the desire to get them gone. It's producing something by remaining under them. How do I know that? Another passage that I didn't put on the screen is 2 Corinthians 4.17. And it says, uh, for momentary light affliction. If you'd read the passage earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, you would see that the light affliction says that I'm taking on the pains of the death of Jesus in my body. It's like being crushed down, perplexed with great complexity. And he calls it light, light affliction in light of, in light of what it's producing. He says, for momentary light affliction, the two words that are key, is producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So God is not just giving you trials and pains and sufferings to test to see if you're in the faith, but he's giving them to produce in you something to be more like Christ, to see and feel and know the comforts of Christ, the comforts of his grace, the comforts of his love. Now you think about ceramics. Have any of you ever done any ceramics? I did when I was younger. I'm missing every single illustration that I'm giving you today is completely missing this group of people. That's okay. But with ceramics, you take this clay and you start building this clay and you put like paint on this clay and you fire it in a, a crucible. And if you stick it in that fire and you stick it in there for about a minute and you pull it out and then you're like, I'm gonna use this to eat on and drink on and drink with. You're gonna put stuff in there to drink and you're gonna drink and drink and it's gonna be great and then the color is gonna run off and then it's gonna, the actual cup is gonna to turn to mud because it wasn't fired right. It didn't stay long enough in the furnace. And that's like you and like me, we have to stay in the furnace. Momentary light affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And James, he says that the word of God has been implanted in your soul. That's verse 18 through 21 of chapter one. And James uses the whole rest of the book before and after to say, is that word really working? Is it real? Has it really been implanted? Do you really have the gospel? Are you really a Christian? So it, our faith is tested under trials and conflicts, but it's also grown and we're, God produces something, endurance in those same trials and conflicts. I hope that as we've been going through some of these passages that your perspective has started to change. That's what God desires. Paul's was changed as he went through these same truths. Let me read it. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. And he said to me, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, with trials, with sufferings for, and pains for Christ's sake, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. See, Paul was changed. His thinking was changed, and his outlook was changed on the, on the difficulties and the persecutions and the sufferings and the pain because he saw what God was doing through his, his thorns in the flesh. 
all of a sudden, instead of praying and longing to get rid of them, he gloried in them because it, he knew that it was fitting him to share in the sufferings, but also what? The glory of God, Christ, which was to follow, the scripture said. Another, another good thing about God taking you and me and his people through this suffering and pain and situations is this. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Man, what a, what a great name. In the midst of trials and all that, he's the Father still of mercies. We think, well, he's the father of trials. He is that too, but he's the father of mercies. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I was going to stop there, but there's too much in the next section. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and for salvation. Or if we are com comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you will be sharers of the comfort of Christ. There's a beauty in going through suffering and trials. It brings us to the end of ourselves. It brings us to the end of our own definition of, of success. You know, it, it brings us uh, into the light of knowing that I'm not adequate in myself, so the things that are accomplished by, through me, are really for the glory of God. But just being in the trials themselves brings us to the place of being able to be comforted with the comfort of Christ. He's the great comforter. And man, when he wraps his arms around you in the midst of the trial, man, Kind of an amazing thing. Well, there was a, a famous fiery furnace in Scripture. A real famous one. Most of you have heard the story. I'm going to read it, and you're going to think, you read the whole thing. I, I'm not going to read the whole entire story, but it's long, so it'll seem like it. And then I'm going to make one comment, and we're going to finish. So if you would uh, bear with me, bear under the trial of listening as you're tired. Daniel 3, 8 through 28. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the harp and the bagpipe and music of every kind, they shall fall down and then they shall worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There were certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. So they, they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn and pipe and lyre and harp and bagpipe and music of every kind to fall down and worship the image that I've made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Said the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, 
to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and anger, and the expression on his face was changed. Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the fiery furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. That's hot. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery, burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and other garments, and they were thrown into the fire, burning fiery furnace. I like the way it has all those words there. Because the king's order was so urgent and the, and the furnace was overheated, the flames of the fire killed the men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up to it. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. That's a sad story. If it was the end. But it's not the end of the story. Most of you know that. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, king. He answered and he said, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not heard, and the appearance of the fourth one is like the Son of Man. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. They had no smell of fire that had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Behold, uh, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies Remember Romans 12? What's well, our reasonable service? Yielded up our bodies in the midst of suffering, pain, and a burning fiery furnace. Rather than to serve and worship any god except the god of gods. Who was changed that day? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You think their, their, their faith was strengthened? Do you think the king was changed that day? All, all the governors, sorry. I just didn't sleep. I don't cry. I'm just kidding. All the governors, everyone was changed that day. The reason they were changed and the reason that we can go through tests and sufferings and trials of all sorts with great joy and, and understand that God is refining and growing us through that is because God himself stepped into that fiery furnace with us, with his people. But he didn't just simply step into the fiery furnace with his people. He steps into the fiery furnace for his people. He's gone through the trial of trials, the suffering of all sufferings, the pain of all pain, so that you and I would never have to go through that particular fiery furnace. And because of that, we can go through the smaller little testings and pains and sufferings that he orders for us because we know that they're not going to have the last word because Jesus has it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. It's such good news. And it's also so hard. Father, it's so hard to look at the trials and the conflicts and the thorns of the flesh and 
the problems that you bring into families in our own cells, the problems we bring on ourselves through the flesh, the problems we bring on ourselves through our sin, the problems that come from without, the problems that come from a un, any unknown source, and we cry out, why, O oh Lord, and we thank you that you've taught us through your word that you, you not only have these trials for us to long to get out of them, you, you have these trials to produce something. And Father, as we remain in them, sometimes it's just to have the comfort of Jesus, whose comfort brings peace. So Father, I pray today for all of us, whatever the particulars are for our sufferings and trials and tribulations and temptations, Father, whatever the specifics are, that you would help us to you know, pray for you to relieve those but much more than that, that we would pray with our minds being changed with understanding that you're a God who comes into those fires and circumstances and situations and you comfort us right there. Sometimes you deliver us out of them and sometimes you cause us to remain under them. In either case, Father, I pray that you would change the way we look at those things. And Father, we thank you that you're one who came and you stepped into the fiery furnace with us and more than that, you stepped into the fiery furnace for us to change the way that we look at the trials and the pains and the sufferings and the conflicts that you bring. In Jesus' name we pray.